0: Hey, good morning church, hope you had a good week. My name is Dan and I have the privilege of serving as the Director of Communications here at Redemption. Guys, I have some exciting announcements for you today, so buckle up. Your 2020 donation receipts were sent out this past Wednesday via email. Please check your email to download your receipt. And hey, if you don't see the email, remember to check your junk mail folder just in case. If you have any questions, please contact the office. When we get back to in-person services, we'll be scheduling a child dedication into one of our services. If you or your family would like to dedicate your child to the Lord, please get in touch with us at the email here. It's pretty quiet around the offices these days, but just to let you guys know, the church office will be closed tomorrow for Family Day. From all of the staff and the elders at Redemption Bible Chapel, we hope that you have a wonderful day with your family. Take care now, and God bless.
2: Hi, my name is Scott Barry. My wife is Nikki Berry, and we have three boys, Jaden, Mason, and Hudson, and we're just recently blessed with a little girl, Aaliyah. We have been coming to redemption for about eight years now, and it's the only church we've ever known. I'd like to share with you my story and my journey to and through salvation. My story starts around six years old. My only real memory of my mom and dad together were really just arguing and yelling at each other. I used to sit at the top of the stairs and watch them scream at each other and wonder if it was me that they were mad at. Sure enough, shortly after turning six, my dad sat my brother and I down and told us that he was leaving and wasn't coming back. This is when I started to believe that love was not meant to last and that marriages were all destined to end early. My first introduction to love was brokenness. Fast forward to 17 and once again, my dad sat us both down. This time, however, he was not moving, he was dying. He had a year to live at best, and it would be a very painful year due to the type of cancer he had. He died almost exactly a year later, and this is when the darkness set in, and I fully gave in to the pain and stopped caring about anything other than my own daily survival. I did things to myself and others that were just awful. For years, I gave into a life of drugs, alcohol, and all-night parties. I wandered into my 20s with no direction at all, with little hope, but when all was about to fall off a cliff, God sent me an angel. For the first time in my life, I had something to live for. It was no surprise I wrapped my entire lives around this woman and thought for sure I had finally found the happiness that would save me. 7 we got married. It was perfect. Honeymoon was perfect. Life was perfect. Then it began to change. It wasn't perfect. I thought the feelings we had were love. Is this not what love is after all these years? It's love and marriage is supposed to be good all the time, right? Well, it didn't. And so in 2012, Nikki and I gave up, and we felt we had no hope for our marriage. But one night alone downstairs, I was listening to a song from a movie that we had just watched called Fireproof. The song was called While I Am Waiting by John Waller. I dropped to my knees in tears and knew right then and there the only hope we had for our marriage. The only hope I had for my soul was Jesus Christ, faith in Christ. I could not wait to tell Nikki what had happened, but guess what, it happened to her also. She also felt the Spirit come over her. She also had given herself to Christ. How is that possible? This was one of the many lessons that I've learned that with God, all things are possible. He was transforming us both at the same time. The impossible was happening in us. And soon after that moment, we both repented and gave our lives to Christ. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. We both came together with broken but open hearts. We did not know who to call or to help us, so we called the only Christian friends we knew, and they directed us to a church, Harvest Bible Chapel. Now, of course, we know as Redemption. We showed up that Sunday in the fall of 2012, and our lives were changed forever. For as we walked into the room, the church service was happening and we immediately felt the love. The music that was playing was brought to us to tears, and the message that was being delivered, I'm sure, was written specifically for us. We held hands, and we were overwhelmed. Everything I had up to that point, I thought would fulfill me, was ripped away. But now I was given a gift, a gift of grace, a gift of mercy, a gift of unconditional love, A gift that once fully received could never be taken away. It was a gift of God, the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, a gift of the Spirit He sent me to guide me through the remaining years of my life. The days that followed were surreal. Everything began to change from the inside out. The way I spoke began to change. The way I thought began to change. The music and movies I watched began to change. The decisions I was making slowly became more and more about others first, before myself. Our marriage was strong. Our family was healthy. And most importantly, we had a strong relationship with God. Nothing could go wrong. But then my brother Steve called me. He too was expecting his first child. He too was recently married. However, he would never get the chance to hold his child or see him grow up. My brother was diagnosed with ALS, which if you don't know, is one of the worst, at least I think, the worst diseases you can get. There was no cure. There was no hope for survival. And worse, he would pass with the slow torture. The following months were black for me. I don't remember much. I couldn't understand how God would let this happen. How could this be? Why me and why him? What is God doing in this? I had no answers. The journey for my brother from start to finish was just over two years. But unlike my father's story, I did not have much hope. This one did. There was a day that Steve was in the hospital and his condition was getting very bad. And we did not know how much time he had left. I knew what I had to do. I had to share with him the truth the truth of the gospel, the message of the hope of Jesus, the message of the gospel that saved me. But I was so afraid as I did not know what to say or how to go about it, especially since my brother and I had never talked about God before. I remember clearly walking into the hospital that day, getting up to his room. I had my Bible in hand and I was trembling because I was not ready. I walked into his room, ready to talk. But when I walked in the room, something was different that day. I felt a very comforting presence. Surely enough, surprisingly, there was my brother, Steve, with a big smile on his face, talking away to the nurse that was taking care of him that day. He was sharing the gospel of Christ to her. He was openly and proudly professing Jesus as his strength through this. I could not figure it out. What just happened? So I ask him, this is what he tells me, God has filled me with the hope in Jesus Christ. I am not afraid to die, brother, but I'm going to spend the last days of my life enlightening and motivating every person that walks through these doors. God has called me through this and one day very soon I will meet Jesus, but not yet, as I have work to do. This is how God works. It was November 2018 when Steve passed and there is not a day that goes by I don't think of him. But I have comfort in knowing his death was not the end for him, but just the beginning. Philippians 1, 2021. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Over the last few years since he passed, yes, of course, there has been a lot of sadness, but I can honestly say there has not been much pain. The love that we have received from Jesus, as well as our brothers and sisters in Christ, has been so overwhelming. Last year, we joined a small group that has truly helped us grow in our walk with Christ. In recent weeks, we have implemented family worship into our lives at the encouragement of our small group in the Vanderform family, God has blessed me with so much in my life, especially in recent days. I believe he has called me to shepherd my boys and now my little girl to be future followers and soldiers for Christ. We are currently living in a world that feels so broken and lost. And for so many, our future seems bleak. But we as Christian families can make the biggest difference you could possibly imagine. And it starts in our own homes. In our family worship time, we learn the word of God together. We sing and give worship to the Lord as a family. Then, of course, we pray with open hearts as a family. I urge all families to implement these three very important things into your daily lives. Our children are going to grow up in a broken world, but as we are seeking God's help to prepare them to be the light in the darkness and disciple our little Christ followers the way Christ disciples us. Being Valentine's Day, I wanna end with this. To truly find happiness, you need to first find love but you cannot love someone else until you can first know what it's like to be loved once you truly and fully feel the love of Christ in your heart everything will begin to change in ways you cannot imagine thank you for listening to my story god's story
1: barely hanging on by a thread of hope, hard to see beyond
3: everything unknown. With your
1: strength, I'll stand. It's all I can do. I will lift my hands and sing
3: my way through. So when I'm broken at my weakest in my darkest eye i'll let my worship be a weapon on this battleground from the depths of the lowest place i will give you the highest praise Lord, you never change, you never, all my confidence in Jesus.
1: cross put the enemy to shame now my song echoes through an empty grave because the cross put the enemy to shame now my song echoes through an empty grave because the cross brokenness to you we bring our weakness to you many this morning feel like they just are hanging on they just can't see their way through thank you for reminding us that you are with us and that you will never leave us or forsake us Lord thank you you never left and you will never change let our worship this morning be an act a weapon against the enemy Lord We lift our voices and know this to be true, that all our hope and all our confidence is in you, Jesus. It's in you, and it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.
4: Good morning, Redemption Bible Chapel. It is February the 10th, and I am here at Redemption with Andrew. Uh, recording the sermon for this coming Sunday. Obviously, as you watch it, it is now Sunday, February the 14th. I had really hoped that the uh, the shutdown would have passed by now, and uh, some of us at least would have been gathered here in the auditorium. But that was not to be, evidently. But uh, hopefully, uh, by February 21st, when I'm scheduled to preach again, at least some of us will will be here, physically present. I'm certainly uh, praying to that end and certainly looking forward to the the day. And I trust the not-so-distant future when we will be uh, together again. Uh, Pastor Norm has been uh, leading you through uh, the book of Matthew and in particular the Sermon on the Mount. And you've made it all the way to chapter 6, verse 24. And so this Sunday, next Sunday... I'm going to be picking things up where Pastor Norm left off. We're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 25 right through 34. And so I would invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to that portion of Scripture. Today I I plan to get as far as verse 30, and then next Lord's Day, verses 31 through 34. But I'll I'll read the verses, this section, in its entirety just to make sure we're we're tracking with the thought flow. And so the Lord Jesus proclaims, he preaches, Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. My oldest daughter, when she was a little girl, maybe three years of age, four years of age, she had this particular toy. It was a a ball, red and blue. And you could pull this ball apart And these little yellow pieces would fall out. And these little yellow pieces were in different shapes. uh, A cross, a star, a triangle, a circle, a square. And there were different holes on the ball uh, of different shapes. And so the idea was to take one of the pieces, the star for instance... And find the star on that red and blue ball and match it and fit it in there. And then the circle and the cross and everything else. Some of you parents, you know this toy. Undoubtedly, you have it at home. Some of you parents watching right now with toddlers at home. You might be in your family room and there's that little ball lying there on the floor with all those yellow pieces scattered all over the place. When you hand that toy to a three-year-old, it's fascinating to watch that little boy, that little girl, because they, they don't get the concept yet of what it means to match the star to the star, the cross to the cross, the circle to the circle. And they will pick up any piece and they will try to fit it into any, any opening on that ball and it's really luck if one of those pieces happens to fit. But they'll take up that triangle and they'll try to force it in the circle And then they'll take up that star and they'll try to force it in the square. And it's not going to happen no matter how hard they try. No matter how much they exert themselves. They are never going to get, for example, that triangle to fit inside the circle. Why? Because they are mismatched. The triangle will not fit in the circle, the square will not fit in the star, and that little cross will not fit in the square or any of the other shapes. The right shape, the right piece must fit the right opening on that ball. And you know, as I've thought about that over the years, sadly, that little toy, more often than perhaps we care to admit, actually reflects the way we think. Uh, There is, at times, I'm not picking on anyone, and I'm not saying this to be critical, I'm just saying to acknowledge it, and I acknowledge it in my own thinking, at times, there is what we can only describe as a mismatch between what we think is real, our perception of reality, And what reality actually is. There is a mismatch, and the two don't fit. They don't meet up. And sadly, the same is true even when it comes to God's Word. At times, there is a mismatch between what God's Word is saying. And our ability to process it and apply it to our lives. And oftentimes that arises, that scenario arises precisely because we have misinterpreted or misunderstood the text. And therefore we are guilty of misapplying that text. And it is like trying to fit that triangle, that little yellow piece into the circular opening on the ball. It's not going in there, no matter how hard we try, because there is a mismatch. And sadly, at times, this can happen with God's word, that if we're not careful in our interpretation, that will impact our understanding and lead to faulty understanding, which will lead to faulty application, which will result in a complete mismatch. Now, why do I belabor this? Why do I even bother mentioning all of that? Well, it's because the verses we've just read, the text we're going to handle today and, Lord willing, next Sunday, if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful in how we interpret it, And in how we understand it, and therefore in how we apply it, if we're not careful, we will end up with a mismatch. We will end up trying to apply this text in a way it was never intended to be applied. And if that happens, the result will be confusion and the result will be a measure of frustration. So we need to be very clear in our interpretation, our understanding, and therefore our application. So to make sure we get it right and to make sure in our approach to this text, we're very clear as to what the Lord Jesus is saying, isn't saying I want to make two remarks right at the outset. There are two things we need to grasp. Two things we really need to comprehend. Here is the first. We must be clear on Christ's subject. His theme. And so look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you. Do not be anxious. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious. He uses that word anxious or anxiety repeatedly in these verses. So evidently, we know his theme is anxiety. So far, so good. Here's the problem. What does he mean by anxiety? Now that's an important question. It is important because there are four different kinds of anxiety. Four different kinds. And we need to grasp this. This needs to be crystal clear, or we're going to end up, to stick with the red and ball analogy, we're going to end up trying to ram that yellow triangle into that circular opening, and it isn't going to fit no matter how hard we try. So there are four different kinds of anxiety. What are they? And what does the Lord Jesus have in mind in these verses? So firstly, pay careful attention to this. Firstly, anxiety is a natural response due to an imminent danger. Did you get that? This is the first definition, the first kind of anxiety. It is a natural response due to an imminent Threat or danger. And so some months ago, back in the fall, my wife Allison and I, we were out for a little walk near the house, maybe five or 10 minutes from our home, and we were on a path, a well-worn path through the woods, and suddenly in front of us, not, not far, I don't know, maybe 30 feet in front of us, a coyote jumped into the path, across the path into the trees. I was anxious I wasn't that anxious because although I'm getting older I can still out outrun my I can still outrun my wife <laughs> so I wasn't that anxious I hope she doesn't watch this on Sunday I'm joking you understand that I'm joking of course I hope but I wasn't that anxious a coyote it wasn't that big but there was a measure of anxiety on my part why because it's a wild animal and I know at times they can nip at people and they can be rather destructive and they can be aggressive at times and so a measure of anxiety on my part a measure of anxiety on allison's part why it's a natural response due to an imminent threat is that what the lord jesus is talking about in this text no he is not if we think that's what he's referring to back to the plastic ball analogy we will be attempting to fit that triangle piece into that circular opening on the ball and it's not going to fit here's the second type of anxiety Anxiety is a behavioral response due to a physiological ailment. It is, note the words carefully, it is a behavioral response due to a physiological ailment. And so as we get older... Some of us in our mid-40s, late-40s, certainly by the time we're in our 50s, male and female, our bodies, we start to undergo and we experience some significant changes. And it affects each of us differently to a different degree and to a different measure. And at times, it can have a very detrimental impact upon us. It can result in significant hormonal imbalances and everything else. Those of you who are going through it, those of you who have been through it, you know exactly what I mean. And at times, those changes can result in high levels of anxiety. If that is where you are at, and if that is what you are experiencing, you need to talk to your doctor is that what the lord jesus is referring to in this text is that the kind of anxiety that he has in view certainly not if we think it is we're going to misinterpret the text we're certainly going to misapply it and we're going to we're going to lead to a great deal of frustration as we try to cram that yellow triangle into the circular opening on the ball it will not fit Now, there is a third kind, a third type of anxiety, and it is this it is a spiritual response due to conviction for sin. A spiritual response due to conviction for sin. And so, someone fudges on their taxes, is less than honest. When they submit their tax forms to the government come March, April, whatever it is. uh, Someone um, engages in an illicit relationship. Something very serious of that nature. God forbid. But there it is as an example. Uh, Someone, man, woman, whatever, commits some other kind of sin. And what happens? A conscience kicks in. And conscience is a gift of God's grace. And conscience, what does conscience do? Conscience takes God's word. Conscience takes and considers God's will as revealed in God's word. And it takes our thoughts and our actions and our words. And it compares the two. And upon comparing the two, it either condones or condemns what we have done or thought or said. And so this is why a well-informed conscience is of absolute necessity and of fundamental importance in the life of a Christian. Because when our conscience is informed by God's word and it is governed by God's word, it means that when our conduct is contrary to God's word, well, that conscience goes off like an alarm, doesn't it? And it begins to ring in our minds. And it impacts us and affects us and weighs heavy upon us. And can create at times what can only be described as a high level of anxiety. Is that what the Lord Jesus is talking about in this text? No, he is not. He is not referring to a natural response due to an imminent threat. He is not speaking of a behavioral response due to a physiological ailment. He is not talking about a spiritual response due to conviction for sin. You see, there is a fourth kind of anxiety, and it is this. It is a sinful response due to idolatry. When we have exalted something in our lives to a position above God himself, the result will always, always, always be sinful anxiety. That is what the Lord Jesus has in view in this text. Oh, we need to be very clear on his theme, on his subject matter, There it is. The second thing we need to be very clear about is his method. It is pretty simple, but it's easy to miss it. Let me demonstrate his method for you. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, note the command. Do not be anxious about your life. Now notice the threefold description. What you will eat, number one. Or what you will drink, that's number two. Nor about your body, what you will put on, that's number three. That is not intended to be an exhaustive list. That is a literary device. The part representative of the whole. And so he identifies eating, he identifies drinking, he identifies wearing, clothing ourselves as representative of all of life and his command is do not be anxious. Now skip down to verse 31. Why? Because he repeats precisely the same command. Therefore, do not be anxious saying. Now note the threefold description. It's exactly the same as what we have back in verse 25. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? So in effect, in this rather brief section text, the Lord Jesus utters the same command twice. Now that is a figure of speech repetition now why is he employing repetition yes i suppose to get his point across that is true but i'm more inclined to think it is a literary device whereby he employs the same command twice because each instance of the command initiates a subsection so in these verses in this portion we actually then have two sections each beginning with the same command. And there are nuanced differences in these sections. We can put them side by side and look at them as parallels, but there are differences because the Lord Jesus is communicating something slightly different in each. And so just look at the first section with me. You've got the command in verse 25. The section goes all the way through to verse 31. And what is it the Lord Jesus is doing here? Firstly, he is identifying the cause of sinful anxiety. And he identifies it simply as follows. It is ascribing ultimate power to something other than God. That's what he's doing in this first section. He's identifying the cause of sinful anxiety. And here it is again. It is ascribing ultimate power to something other than God. He builds on that by prescribing a remedy. Well, if the cause of sinful anxiety is ascribing ultimate power to something other than God, then what is the remedy? It's pretty straightforward. It is simply this. We need a glimpse. We need a sight of God's incomparable power. And in this section, there is a question that really we can formulate as follows. It is a question that the Lord Jesus wants us to wrestle with. He wants us to engage with it. He wants us to answer it. Because it is only in answering this question that we will really come to grips with the cause of sinful anxiety, ascribing ultimate power to something other than God. And it is only by answering this question honestly, that we will come to the remedy, the sight of God's incomparable power. And the question is simply this: where is your faith? That is it. Where is your faith? That's the first section. You then have the second section, the commandment, the exact same commandment repeated in verse 31. The section goes through to verse 34, and now it is slightly different. Here the Lord Jesus identifies another cause of sinful anxiety, and it is this, ascribing ultimate worth, ascribing ultimate value to something other than God. Well, if that is the cause, what is the remedy? Pretty simple. The remedy is this. We need an appreciation of God's inestimable worth. And so in the first section ascribing ultimate power to something other than God. In the second section, ascribing ultimate worth to something other than God. In the first section, the remedy, a glimpse of God's incomparable power. In the second section, the remedy, an appreciation of God's inestimable worth. In the first section, what's the question we must answer, we must come to grips with? It is simply this, where is your faith? In the second section, what is the question that is in view, the question of questions that we need to answer honestly before God if we want to faithfully identify the cause of sinful anxiety in our lives and faithfully identify the remedy for that sinful anxiety, the question is this, where is your treasure? Those are the two questions. That is it. Where is your faith? And where is your treasure? If you really want to obey this command, do not be anxious. Oh, we need to come to grips with these two heart-piercing questions and answer them before the Lord. Where is your faith? And the second, where is your treasure? So what are we going to do now? We're going to focus on that first section. We're going to keep the second section for next Sunday. And so really now our focus, we're honing in on verses 25 through 30. And we understand now the cause in this section of sinful anxiety. We understand what the remedy is. And we understand what the key question is, the chief question that we must keep in view at all times. Where is your faith? And now I want to proceed into the text. And I want us to listen closely carefully intently to what the Lord Jesus is saying to us here and I just want I want to take you by the hand figuratively speaking take you by the hand and I want to just point you to the text you know imagine imagine we're in a in a counseling context and you've come to me because you are struggling with sinful anxiety. You know it. And, and, and you're looking for some, some counsel. So just, just imagine that's the context. And, and we're sitting and we're discussing. And we've opened the scriptures. We've read these verses. We've heard from the Lord Jesus. Okay, here's, here's what I would say to you. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord Jesus. I, w- I want to affirm that the Lord Jesus is speaking to you. And he is saying four things to you. All right? Just four things. And you and I, we need to hear these things. If we're going to deal with sinful anxiety in our lives. So here's the first thing we need to hear from the Lord Jesus. The first thing he is saying to us. Just in one word. Are you ready? Consider. That's it. That's the first thing. Consider. Now why do I say that? Well look with me at verse 26 and look at how it begins look consider look at the birds of the air why they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them and so the Lord Jesus is exhorting us to look He is exhorting us to engage our mental faculties. He is exhorting us to think, and he is exhorting us to consider. And he is turning our attention to something so simple, something that we miss each and every day of our lives, something that we rarely think about, the birds of the air. And where they come from, and where they go, and how they survive. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, look at what he says in verse 28 Consider the lilies of the field. It's the middle of the verse. Consider the lilies of the field. So, look at the birds of the air. And now, secondly, consider. The lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So look at the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. These things, birds, lilies, flowers, grass, things which are of such insignificance. Things which are of no consequence at all. Here's what I want you to consider. That God watches over these things. That God sustains these things. God provides for these things. God governs these things. I want you to consider this. I want you to think it through. And the Lord Jesus, He's telling us indirectly, and some of us might not want to hear this. There are times when I don't want to hear this. The Lord Jesus is making it very clear we can control our anxiety. We can control our anxiety by controlling our thinking and what we're looking at and what we're considering. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1:17, that God gave us a spirit not of fear, not of anxiety, but of power and love and self-control. We can control anxiety by controlling our thinking, and the first step in our thinking process must be this: we must consider and as we look at these things which are so insignificant as we take stock of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field as we take stock of this world in which we live and this great creation all around us and we just stop and we consider what do we discover. We learn that there are no random events. There are no random events. There are no freak accidents. There are no chance encounters. And there are no rogue molecules. God keeps all things in existence. God causes all things to act as they do. And God directs all things to their appointed end. Hear this, please. God governs the snowflake and the supernova and absolutely everything in between. Do you know what this means? It means that every detail of every life was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. It means that this great and glorious God works all things, the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, even insignificant things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, Jerry Bridges draws out the full implications of this. Again, it's a little painful for us to hear this, so I'm going to hide behind Jerry Bridges. Uh, Jerry Bridges, in his book, I think it's called Respectable Sins. He pens the following. Anxiety. Anxiety is simply a lack of acceptance of God's providence in our lives. That's all it is. Anxiety, that sinful anxiety. Is simply a lack of acceptance of God's providence in our lives. And that is why the Lord Jesus, he speaks to us and he tells us to consider. Just look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies of the field. Now, the second thing the Lord Jesus says to us, building on the first, consider. The second thing he says to us is this, Deduce. And so it's not enough simply to think about this. It's not enough simply to, to line up the facts and to consider things as they are. It's extremely important. But n- now we must do something else. We need to deduce from our thinking. We need to deduce, draw certain conclusions from the facts. We need to draw certain inferences from this reality that God governs the snowflake and the supernova and everything in between. We need to deduce from that reality certain things. We need to deduce from this glorious truth that he works all things together according to his will. And what are we to deduce? Well, look at the question the Lord Jesus asks in verse 26. So after exhorting us to look at the birds of the air and to recognize that they do not toil nor spin or anything else, but they they don't gather, but the the Father in heaven looks after them. Look at the question the Lord Jesus asks. Are you not? Are you not? of more value than they so you've looked at the birds of the air you've understood that god reigns and rules in sovereignty even over them cares for them provides for them here's what you are now to deduce are you not of more value than they and then look at the question in verse 29. You've considered the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. They're relatively worthless. And yet look how glorious they are. But they're here today. They're gone tomorrow. Like the grass of the field, which is alive tomorrow, thrown into the oven. What are we to deduce from it? Look at this question right at the end of verse 29. Will he not much more clothe you? And so as we consider these realities and as we consider God's providential care and governance over all things, we are to deduce and take to heart that this God cares for us. Mabel Dennison, decades ago, stated it so well, so eloquently, of all God's marvels transcendent. This wonder of wonders I see that the God of such infinite greatness should care for the sparrows and me. That is deduction. It is taking the facts as they are before us, and it is deducing this wonderful truth that God loves us, and God will indeed care for us. A long time ago, I already referenced my oldest daughter earlier, didn't I? But one more time, when she was just a little girl, I think maybe four, uh, she crawled up into Allison's lap and fixed her big blue eyes, uh, you know, right on uh, Allison's eyes, stared her in the face, and said to her, "Uh, Mommy, I I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it. I love you as big as Walmart. And everything in it. It melted Allison's heart. I mean, coming from a three-year-old or four-year-old, I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it. Well, that little girl's all grown up now. She's 21. if she was to walk through the front door tonight and uh, get up close to my wife, Allison, and look her in the face, stare her in the eyes, and say to her, Mom, I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it my wife would be less than impressed. Why? Because that little girl's perspective has changed over the years. She's come to realize that Walmart, well, there are hundreds of thousands of Walmarts and there are hundreds of thousands of retail stores and Walmart in a huge city is relatively nothing. And there are tens of thousands of cities. And what is Walmart in comparison to this world? And what is this world in comparison to our galaxy? And what is this galaxy in comparison to the universe? I love you as big as Walmart and everything in it for from a 21-year-old would actually be an un- insult and rather ne- the next to meaninglessness, right? Well, God has declared his love for us. And he has declared his love for us in a manner, in a fashion, which cannot be excelled. There is nothing greater than his declaration of his love for us. There is nothing greater than his manifestation of his love for us. Paul tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing bigger than that. There is nothing greater than that. There is no greater testimony, demonstration, manifestation, declaration of the love of God for his people than he willingly sent forth his son. And his son climbed that lonely cross. And upon that cross, his son became a curse for us, bearing that judgment we deserved, swallowing it whole. I read, I think it was last year, I was reading something. I can't remember what it was. Some sort of magazine. It was based in the southern states. It might have been New Mexico or Texas, somewhere down there. And it it was a story about this rancher. And he was on his property, huge acreage, and he was miles from his truck out there in the grasslands, and to his horror, he suddenly saw this sweeping grass fire coming straight for him. The wind was behind the fire, blowing it toward him. He knew he didn't have a chance of turning around, getting back to his truck. He never could have outrun that fire. There was nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, so what did he do? As the fire approached closer and closer, just sweeping across that grassland, he simply turned his back to it. He took out his lighter and he lit the dry grass in front of him and it just ignited, exploded. The wind caught it and blew it away from him. And as the fire behind crept closer, what did he simply do to escape it? He stepped onto the charred ground in front of him. When that fire reached him, there was no longer any fuel to burn and it simply died out and he was saved. Do we understand what has happened at Calvary's cross? The fire, if you like, hell itself, came to Calvary's cross that day and the Lord Jesus swallowed it whole. And he has left nothing for us. This is the love of God. This is the living, abiding, eternal testimony of God's love for us. That he did that. He sent his son demonstrating his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, friends, he loves us. He loves us. And because he loves us, he cares for us. Are you not of more value than they? Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, please deduce from the facts that we can, in the language of Peter, cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. That is the deduction. We consider We deduce, and now thirdly, the Lord Jesus says to us, apply, apply. You've considered, look at the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field. You've deduced, are you not of more value than they? Will he not much more clothe you? Now apply it, drive it home, take it to heart. And we do this simply by answering the question the Lord Jesus asks in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's worth repeating. And which of you, verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Please acknowledge, reading between the lines, the Lord Jesus is simply saying this. Please acknowledge that anxiety is an exercise in futility. You know, it may be someone, someone, you know, you're watching right now this morning. And um, whatever time it is, 10, 30, 11. And you've been up since 2. 2 a.m. You've been up since 3 a.m., 4 a.m., whatever. And you woke up. And you woke up just gripped, anxious thoughts. This is on your mind, that is on your mind, tossing and turning, couldn't get back to sleep, finally just gave up, crawled out of bed at four thirty-five 5 o'clock, put the coffee on, and even since then, you've just been in the grips of this anxious, anxious mess. Uh, l- let me ask you, and I ask this just pastorally, and I ask it in love, how's that working out for you? How has that helped resolve anything? That anxiety and the time and the hours you've spent just tossing and turning, just this thing going around in your mind, has it, has it helped resolve the issue? Has it brought any greater clarity? Ha, has, it, has it provided any meaningful, lasting solution? It is an exercise in futility. Oh, we need to consider the facts. We need to consider the reality, who God is and his governance over all things. We need to deduce from that that we, his people, those for whom his beloved son shed his blood upon Calvary's cross, he cares for us, and we need to apply it. We need to take it to heart, and we need to understand that engaging in this anxious mess is an exercise in futility. it is pointless it contributes nothing to resolving the situation. And we need to exercise clear thinking here. It's Jeremiah in, in Lamentations chapter 3 as he faces dire circumstances and the problems are mounting and the opposition just all around him. He utters this tremendous statement, but this I will call to mind. I'm going to think, this I will call to mind. And what does he call to mind? God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness. Oh, we must engage in serious thinking. I'm going to say it, I'll repeat it a couple of times because we must learn this. Whatever rules our minds will control our lives. Whatever rules our minds will control our lives. Oh, learn that while you're young and you will spare yourself from years and years of futility. Whatever rules our minds will control our lives. We must call this to mind and consider who our God is and deduce from that his watchful care over our lives and seek to drive it home whereby it permeates us. All you tea drinkers, two in the afternoon, three in the afternoon, or whenever it is you like to take your cup of tea. There it is, you've boiled the water, you've put the boiling water in your favorite mug, or if you're old school, you've got your teapot and the tea leaves are in there, and you pour in the boiling water, that's great. Whatever the case may be, the tea bag's gone in, the tea leaves have gone in, and then you sit and you wait. Why? The tea must permeate that water, permeating it, infiltrating it to get that precise Perfect cup of tea that you're longing for. Oh, it's the same thing when it comes to truth. It's exactly the same thing when it comes to God's word. Oh, it must permeate us. Shaping our thinking. Whereby we can declare with the psalmist, Psalm 25 verse 2. Oh my God. In you I trust. Oh my God. In you I trust. Oh, this is application. And so I'm anxious. Let's say I'm anxious about what others think of me. Oh, I need to apply God's word. Philippians 2 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I'm anxious about what I might lose. Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm anxious about the possible consequences of that situation. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, but I'm anxious about how others have mistreated me and misused me. Romans 5.8, we just heard it. Here it is again. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Apply it to that situation. I'm anxious about how unpleasant that situation, that circumstance, that thing I'm facing might be. James one we'll count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Oh, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Oh, but I'm anxious about suffering. Uh, whatever, physical, emotional, I'm just anxious about suffering. Oh, you need to apply Romans 8:18. 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is what the Lord Jesus is saying to us, folks. We need to consider. We need to deduce. And we need to apply. And fourthly, and finally, and in a way, I suppose, we come full circle. Here's the fourth thing he says to us. Obey. The first was consider. The second was deduce. The third was apply. And the fourth is obey. Do. Not be anxious. Having considered, having deduced, having applied, it is now time to obey. Do not be anxious. A failure to obey reveals what? Look right at the end of verse 30. O oh, you of little faith, where is your Faith. In Matthew 8, the disciples are worried because of the raging storm all around them. And the Lord Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. In Matthew 14, Peter is worried because he's starting to sink into the sea. And the Lord Jesus fixes his gaze upon him and says, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? In Matthew 16, the disciples are worried because they haven't any bread to eat. And the Lord Jesus says to them, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? William Hendrickson writes the description, this description, oh, you of little faith, refers to those who are not sufficiently taking to heart The comfort they should derive from the presence, the promises, the power, and the love of Jesus Christ. Oh, we must take these things to heart. It's wonderfully summed up in three words. What we must take to heart in order to obey, in order to... Fix our faith upon God in order to make sure we are riveted, if you like, captured, overwhelmed with his incomparable power and his goodness and his wisdom toward us. Three little words. The Lord Jesus repeats them twice. Once in the first section, once in the second section. Look at verse 26, toward the end. Yet, here are the three words. Your heavenly Father, look at verse 32 into the second section, middle of the verse, and here they are, the three same words. Your heavenly Father, O oh, you of little faith, I don't think the Lord Jesus, as he utters that statement there at the end of verse 31, oh, you of little faith, I don't think he's being condescending. I don't think he's trying to pick a fight with anyone. I certainly don't think he's being harsh or overly critical. I, almost, I, I assume that he, uh, as he utters these words, he almost does so with this sort of welcoming, if you like, and understanding look, smile upon his face. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Where is your faith? It must be fixed upon your heavenly Father. Do you understand those three words? Not everyone can say that. I know it's a popular view today that God is the Father of humanity. No, he's not. Well, I suppose he is in a way of creation. He created all things. Therefore, he's the father of all things by virtue of creation. That's fine. That's fine. If we want to use it in that way, fine. But that's rarely the way in which scripture speaks of it. When scripture speaks of God's fatherhood, he's not referring to God's general care over humanity, everyone. No, scripture is referring specifically to his people. God is our father. And we are His people. He has taken us to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus. And now we come to him in prayer, do we not? Our father who is in heaven. He is our heavenly father. Paul celebrates this in Galatians chapter four. He tells us that when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. Born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Why? Listen carefully. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent forth his son, his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Yes, to redeem us, rescue us, deliver us, save us. We get that. But there's more to it. It's only half of it. It's so that we might receive the blessing. And what is the blessing that we are now adopted sons? Paul doesn't stop there. In the same text in Galatians, he goes on to say, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit. See, he's a triune being. Not only has the son come forth, not only has the father sent the son, but the father has sent the spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, Crying, what? Abba Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And therefore, where is our faith? Oh, our faith is fixed on Him. And because our faith is fixed on Him, we obey. We obey what? Christ's command to us do not be anxious. We've covered a lot of ground in those four terms. Consider, deduce, apply, obey. If you were to ask me to sum it all up. One statement. One takeaway statement. Here it is. We, God's children, must fix our anxious minds on this singular truth. God is a father who loves his children and who knows what is best for us. Our Heavenly Father, may we indeed take this reality to heart. We need your help to do so. We pray that your Spirit would give us understanding, understanding of your Word as we've opened it today. We pray that your Spirit would incline our hearts to it. May you enlarge our faith, uh, help us to see you for who you are, your incomparable power, especially as revealed in Scripture. And may, may we take great comfort from this, this awareness, this acknowledgement that you have demonstrated your love for us in Christ Jesus. And may we celebrate the fact that you are our God and we are your people. And may you turn our hearts to obey. We know this is for our good, and we pray that it might be for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.
3: trust you, Lord, in all things we trust you. Your ways are higher than our own. Let your
1: kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And to your hear our hearts cry out singing done here on earth as it is in heaven Lord we pray and ask father you would come quickly come quickly to make things right but until that time find us faithful find your church faithful serving you loving your people in Jesus name we pray these things amen church go in peace